on. And I almost forgot that I had it on because as a bloke, I don't look in the mirror very often. That might be quite apparent. It reminded me when I was at Bible college and I went for this ridiculous haircut because I thought it was funny. And then you'd be down at the shops and you'd be checking out and, and you'd see the person with a bit of smirk on their face and you'd think, oh, I wonder what they're going through the head. Then like, oh yeah, I look ridiculous. <laughs> I'm glad that I wasn't unwell last week. Um, because preaching a sermon on divorce and remarriage would have been a very interesting choice for Father's Day. I've never preached a Father's Day message, and this isn't specifically a Father's Day message. Um, We are just continuing where we are through Mark's Gospel, and this is where we're up to this morning. So let's come before the Lord in prayer uh, that we might receive through his word this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a Father who loves us, You are a Father who has revealed yourself to us. Lord, we thank you that um, in Christ, those who have seen him have seen the Father. And as we look at Jesus Christ this morning, we pray that we might see, behold, and stand in awe and have greater affection for who you are a greater desire to love and to serve you with all of our heart, soul and mind. And so, Lord, we we pray that your word, we we stand here confidently, know that your word is powerful and effective. We pray for our, our own humility to receive and for the work of your spirit to transform. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the big news items this week was that when they announced the the quarantine facility out at World Camp, they also decided that they weren't going to bring people into Queensland for a couple of weeks to sort of let the hotel quarantine facilities have a little bit of a rest. But that wasn't the, the big contentious issue. The fact was, while they were preventing even Queensland residents from coming back into Queensland, they give the thumbs up to rugby league players, their families, to come into Queensland. And there was a lot of people who quite fairly asked, why do sports people get special privileges? But it's not just in regards to sportsmen and boarders and all those sorts of things. We see it in so many different aspects of our life where people, because of their status, because of their wealth, because they've got friends in high places, receive special privileges. And today as we look at this passage, we're going to ask the question if there is anything about status or who we know that grants us any priority access to Jesus Christ and his kingdom. And in this passage we look at two groups that are completely polar opposites. We see young little children who have absolutely nothing and this rich young ruler who not only has a lot of material goods but actually has a pretty good record with regards to his morality and we're going to look at how Jesus how they approach Jesus but also how he responds to them we're going to look at those with nothing that's the children in verses 13 to 16 those with everything I'll put inverted commas because it's not everything Verses 17 to 22, looking at Jesus teaching his disciples about faith in Christ alone in verses 23 to 31 and asking the question about 
all or nothing as we sort of apply and wrap up the passage. So firstly, those with nothing, verses 13 to 16. Before we even look at those verses, there are some significant cultural differences that we need to acknowledge. The way we perceive children today is very different than the way children were perceived in a first century culture. Like for us, the idea of children, uh, there's a perception of endearment and in value. Like if a humanitarian charity is trying to raise money, they will use images of children knowing that that will capture our heart. You know, every single politician, when they're out in the campaign trail, they've got to get that photo of them holding a baby because it, it communicates something of, of value and something about their, their personality and their character. But that wasn't the way it was in the first century. They didn't think of children as something to be cherished, something that was uniquely valuable. Like, they actually perceived children more as sort of like the necessary evil that happened before you became an adult. They didn't have status. They weren't considered particularly valued. Their input wasn't considered. And even their concept of adulthood was once they reached age of 13, which we would probably even still call a child today. And this is the reason why when people are bringing these young children to Jesus, the disciples rebuke them. From the perspective of the disciples, they think these insignificant children, Jesus doesn't need to waste his time with these people who in our culture, their culture that is, didn't have status. The word used for children means little children. So remember, if their idea of adulthood started from 13, when they say little children, they mean the younger of the less than 13. And I'm inclined to believe the fact that they had to be brought to Jesus, we're talking about infants, ones who couldn't walk to Jesus themselves, but who had to be brought to Jesus. So we're talking the littlest of the little. So why are these people bringing the children to Jesus? They're not bringing him to Jesus for that they might be healed or that they might have demons cast out, as was often the case when he was before the crowds throughout Mark. They're bringing the children to Jesus in the hope that he may lay his hands upon them. Or Matthew 19 also adds that he might lay his hands upon them and pray for them. Surely that's a good, noble pursuit. Yet Jesus' own disciples They rebuke because they think that Jesus has higher priorities. He's too important than to be wasting his time with kids of no status within society. So you could say, yeah, their intention was good. Their their intention was, let Jesus focus on the things that are important. But their understanding of what was important in the sight of their master was greatly misunderstood. Jesus didn't only disapprove of the disciples' interference. He was indignant. He was angry that they would hinder people from bringing these young children to him. Regardless of what the society thought of the children, from Jesus' perspective, don't you dare hinder them coming to me. 
Jesus not only rebukes the disciples, but in the process teaches them why it's important that they should come to him. He said to them, let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. Despite the fact they had no status in society, despite they were too young to do anything or to give anything to win the approval of Jesus, they couldn't offer him anything that might gain merit in his sight, Jesus says, do not write them off as unworthy recipients of the kingdom. Instead, on the other hand, he says, these infants have exactly what is required for entry into the kingdom. He expresses that in two ways. Firstly, he says, to such as these, to people like these little children, belongs the children. Belongs the kingdom. And then in a second statement he says, whoever, anyone of any age who seeks to enter in the kingdom must do so like a child, like one of these children before their very eyes. In other words, Jesus is saying there is something about the nature of a child that is important for every single person who would desire to enter into the kingdom of God needs to recognise and apply. But what is it? What is it specifically about a small child that all of us need to know, that all of us need to, to embody in order to come to Christ? Well, there's a lot of theories that get swung around. There'll be some who say, well, children by nature are inherently innocent. Now, I reckon the sort of person who says that either hasn't got children, maybe he's never seen children, or they've got dementia. Children are not inherently innocent. They can be cute, but they're not inherently innocent. But not only is that a wrong statement to make, the implications of such a statement would say that you need to get to a point where you are morally innocent before you can come and enter the kingdom of God. And so somehow you need to improve your life morally. You need to get to a certain standard before you have any shot whatsoever at earning the merit, grace and favour of Jesus Christ. Which is a foolish thing to say. Remember what Paul said to the Romans in chapter 5 verse 8? God showed his love to us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It doesn't say he showed his love because when we got to a certain moral standard, then Jesus thought, wow, that's worth saving. I'm going to die for them. While we were still sinners. Now others read these words and say, well, to come to Christ like a child is because children are just so trusting. They take things on face value. They just believe. And, and it's true, that is generally the nature of a child. But it's also not a good thing to say about how we approach the kingdom of God. 
That kind of says that Christian faith is a faith that just believes, but we don't question anything. We just, you're not allowed to do that. I find the settings where people say you can't ask questions is because asking questions about something suggests there's, it's going to tear the whole thing apart. We do not come to faith in Christ just ignorantly believing and not asking any questions. If something has to have any substance to it whatsoever, you should be able to throw the hardest questions possible at it and it still stand. We do not come to Christ because we can't ask questions, we just openly accept it. We don't just come to Christ, believe in the gospel because, man, that sounds like a great idea that someone would save me, there'd be an everlasting life, which are indeed appealing and attractive ideas and true ideas. But not only is the idea attractive, but every possible question we can throw at the gospel does nothing more than validate the authenticity of the gospel. So if it's not about coming to Christ in our innocence like a child or in a completely trusting nature like a child that's been commended, well, what should it be? I think it's largely the very same reason why the disciples initially refused the children to be brought to Jesus. They can bring nothing. Children have nothing that they can offer. That's a great Father's Day message, isn't it? Children have got nothing to offer. They've got no status. They've got no list of achievements that would merit the favour or to earn them access into the kingdom. So what that means is any chance whatsoever for them to enter in the kingdom must depend upon something that somebody else does. That is, by Jesus Christ, his death where he bore the penalty for our sin, his resurrection as he raised in glorious victory, simply received by faith. To keep stretching out the comparison with the newborn, a newborn cannot look after themselves. Anyone who's been around newborn kids knows that very well. They can't feed themselves. They are dependent upon their mother to feed them. They can't even get to the food. They're dependent on their mother to bring them to the food. But if they're going to benefit from that, they actually need to drink. And in the same sense, God, through his spirit, draws us to Jesus. Jesus has done the work to make it possible for us to be reconciled to God. But we must receive that gracious provision through the means of faith. Nothing in our status, nothing in our achievements will count for anything. Now that shocked the disciples. It shocked the disciples that not being able to offer something wasn't a hindrance to the kingdom, but was actually a necessary foundation. That those who recognise they have nothing actually have got the right preparation to receive everything. But what about those who seemingly have everything? Like if infants were the epitome of those who would seem to be the least likely 
to have access and worthy to approach Jesus and his kingdom, the man introduced in verses 17 to 22 seems like the prime candidate to receive from Jesus. Not only was he a wealthy man, but he was a morally excellent man. Again, we'll see some cultural differences that we need to bridge between now and then. In our culture, we tend to be a little bit suspicious about someone who claims to be a spiritual person but who is exceedingly wealthy. Sometimes we might even make assertions that the way, the fact they've become wealthy might be through maybe poorer morals or ethics. Not necessarily the case, but sometimes these are presumptions that people might make. On the other hand, to the first century Jew, prosperity was perceived to be a sign of God's blessing upon somebody who was in right standing before God. Whether they had rightly perceived it or not, that was a common perception. Yeah, there are some precedents in the Old Testament. For example, Job, who's described as an upright and a blameless man, and we see him there with all that he had. You read the opening verses to Psalm 128, you seem to get that same impression that those who are right in the sight of God materially uh, uh, receive favour and blessing from him. But you also don't want to overlook the fact that the Old Testament champions the cause of the oppressed, of the poor, of the widow. Jesus does the same. And if Jesus is the example to look to, he says, I haven't even got a place to lay my own head. If you think it's all about rich and real estate, Jesus don't have a house. Nevertheless, to set the scene and the cultural setting, the people who heard and saw what was transpiring perceived that riches were a sign that that person was approved and blessed by God. Now, the disciples would have been just as shocked by Jesus' reluctance with this rich man as they were shocked by his willingness towards the young children. It's recorded both in Matthew 19, Mark 10, Luke chapter 18. Uh, Surprisingly, Mark is the most detailed of those three. Commonly referred to as the rich young ruler because he's referred to as a ruler in Luke chapter 18. Here in Mark, he's just a man who is described as being a wealthy man. But despite being presented as both rich and morally excellent, he's also described and perceives himself as somebody who is lacking. We see this in his actions, and from Matthew's account, we see it in his own description of himself in Matthew 19.20. In his actions, we see there in verse 17, as he was setting out his journey, this man, this rich man, ran up, so there's a sense of urgency, and he knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He recognises instantly Jesus is someone he needs to get to. He recognises instantly his inferiority with regards to Jesus. He kneels before him and he asks this man, he calls good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He's not arrogantly presuming that he's an immediate in. He realises he's not in and ask, what do I need to do? 
It's a good question. What must I do to inherit everlasting life? At this stage in Mark's Gospel, it's probably the best question that somebody has asked of Jesus. Remember, after Peter's misunderstanding of the Messiah, Jesus presented to the disciples the nature of his mission. He was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they, the disciples that is, did not understand the saying and they were afraid to ask him. So Jesus has outlined to his disciples the means by which eternal life became a possibility. The means by which people could enter into the kingdom, enter into eternal life. Now the rich man is asking, how do I receive the benefits of the work of Jesus Christ? In this passage is the only reference within Mark's gospel to this expression of eternal or everlasting life. Gets used a lot in John's gospel. And this man's questions probably comes from some of the Old Testament scriptures, for example, like Daniel 12.2, where it speaks about the resurrection, saying, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So possibly with a verse like this in the back of the mind, this man says, What do I do to inherit everlasting life? What do I do to enter into this resurrection? What do I do to enter into this salvation? After what we've seen in verses 13 to 16 with regards to the little children, Jesus' answer might seem a little bit perplexing at first. Because in all accounts, Matthew, Mark and Luke, Jesus just lists a number of the Ten Commandments. Although you'll notice there in Mark's, he mentioned something not explicitly mentioned about defrauding. Has Jesus just kind of outlined to this guy, say, now it's just about a list of doing things. If you do a list of things, you'll be good. Is he saying entry into the kingdom is earned by obeying a list of rules? Certainly not. Remember what Paul said to the Galatians in 2.21. If righteousness could come through the law... Christ died needlessly. But even the rich man knows in his heart that keeping a list of commands is not enough. In Matthew's account, where we see a slightly longer answer in response to Jesus' Jesus' answer, we see the rich man say this in Matthew 19.20. The young man said to him, All of these I have kept, Mark adds, since my youth. But then he says, What do I still lack? This guy who is rich, who can say all these these commandments that Jesus just laid out before him, he says, I've kept all of them since my youth, can still say, but I still lack something. I'm going to give him a benefit of the doubt. I'm going to presume that he had kept them all. A little bit like the way Paul expresses about himself in Philippians 3, 6 when he says regarding righteousness and the law, he was blameless. So for the sake of, I'm going to give him the benefit of doubt, say maybe he did. But as Jesus responds to the question of his lack, he says in verse 21, Jesus looked at him, loved him, 
and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Come, follow me. Often people overlook one element there. It says, and Jesus loved him. When Jesus says this, he's not trying to find a way to make it difficult so the guy will give up on it. Jesus loved him, wanted and desired a relationship with him, and because of that, he addressed the very thing that was a hindrance to that man entering into a relationship with him. It's not a universal command for all Christians that somehow what you need to do is you need to sell every single thing that you've got. But it was something definitely that this man needed to hear. Nor was Jesus saying, well, you've said you kept all the others, I'll take your word at it, you got about a 9 out of 10. But if you do this one more, because I love you, man, because Jesus said I love you, man, that'll be good enough for me. Jesus is not just adding an extra thing to the existing list. He has identified the one thing that this man wanted more than his stated question of wanting to enter into the kingdom, entering into life eternal. It was kind of like you got box A, eternal life, salvation, forgiveness in Jesus' name, or box B, all of your possessions, all of your riches. Pick one. And he says, I'll take this one. I'll, if, I, if, it's, if it's one or the other, I'm choosing this one. And if you were put in that situation, you would choose the thing that you thought was most valuable to you, as did this young man. It's a question of what's more important. Will you love God with all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength? And when it got put in these terms for this rich young man, he's like, no. I did, I was keen, but that's just too much. I'm okay with your whole denying yourself, take up a cross and follow me, but not that much denying myself. So we're told this man was sad, went away, and presumably never followed Christ. Presumably, we don't have any record of what happened after that. But imagine the shock look on the face of the disciples. He had the perception of everything. What appeared to be the sign of God's blessing and his riches. He was morally excellent. But when put to the situation, what do you value more? Entering the kingdom or your riches? He happily turned from the kingdom to stay with his riches. These disciples have been rebuked from trying to hinder those who had nothing from coming and being told they had everything they needed. And the one who seemed to have prosperity and morality, he was told, you lack. Now knowing the disciples have got a lot to take in, Jesus explains to them a little bit about what they've just witnessed. He turns to the disciples and says, how difficult it is for the rich to enter the kingdom. Actually, and then after they express their shock, he repeats it again. And most of the earlier manuscripts don't even mention the rich, but they just say how hard it is to enter the kingdom. 
And then goes on to illustrate the difficulty specifically that wealth introduces. A very well-known verse and phrase, he says, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And it's such a well-known phrase, a well-known verse, but it's also an often misrepresented phrase and verse. Some will think, camel through a needle? Surely Jesus is not saying that. That's ridiculous. He must have been saying a cable to go through a needle. Something that's not easy, but you you work hard enough, it's good enough. Linguistically, there is no evidence whatsoever for Jesus to have said that it is more as difficult as putting a cable through a needle. The point is not to say it's hard, but if you if you do a bit of niggle work, by your efforts you can get into the kingdom. Or then there'll be some who say, now what Jesus is saying here, this this eye of the needle was like a gate in the wall into the city, and, and the camels they had to take off their packs and get down their knees to fit through it. Guess what? There is not a single reference to a gate in a wall like that till some 900 years after this was written. The point of what Jesus is saying is not saying, yeah, rich can get in there, all they need to do is take a few things off and put in a bit of extra work and and, and by their own efforts they're in. What Jesus said is exactly what you heard him saying. He wanted a ridiculous example. It is impossible. Now, I don't want you to go down to the local zoo and see if you can squeeze a, a camel through an iron needle, but take my word for it, you can't do it. Jesus wanted to put forward a situation that no human being had the power to solve whatsoever. Hence one why the disciples exclaimed, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible. Not difficult, impossible. But not with God. For all things are possible with God. It's not only for the rich that it's impossible to earn salvation. It's impossible for anyone by their works, by their riches, by their moral character, by their good deeds, by their status in society to earn their way into God's kingdom. It's not possible for a single one. Paul writing to the Romans says, there's none good, no, not one, no one righteous. And 3.23 says all, which means all in the Greek, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And there will not be a single person who enters into the kingdom by any other means than faith in the completed work of Jesus Christ. Any attempt to enter the kingdom by morals, riches, good works, status, church attendance, impossible. Now, Peter, we know he's the guy who likes to speak up quickly. He hears about all this stuff and see, oh, that guy, he, he wouldn't give up his stuff. So he wants to let Jesus know, hey, Jesus, we, we all left stuff. Now, remember me? I left me boats behind, me fishing stuff. Matthew over there, he left the tax booth behind. We're all pretty sweet, aren't we? And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left his house or brothers or sisters 
or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. It's good to see not the whole list is good things. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the, f- the last first. Now that almost sounds like Jesus has given a bit of a prosperity doctrine there, doesn't it? Jesus is not promising material wealth, real estate and land if you give up things for him. He's not doing the prosperity gospel of if you sow a seed, then I'm going to multiply and somehow you're going to have heaps and heaps of houses, you've got a whole real estate portfolio. Well, that's not what he's talking about when he's referring to houses. What he's simply saying is, even if the gospel should cause you to have to leave some of your own genetic family, you'll receive a hundredfold more as you enter into the family of the kingdom of God, of his children, of his household. Even if you have to leave your house, that is your family unit, you'll enter into the household of God and have abundantly more. Even if you lose land like you get rejected by your family because of of Jesus and the gospel and you don't get the land or whatever else. And it's reminded that those who belong to Christ will inherit the earth. There may be persecutions along the way, but in the age to come, eternal life. Then it's almost like a summary statement. Jesus says, many... He doesn't say all, many who the world calls last will be first, as beautifully illustrated with the children early on. And also many, but not all, who are first in the world's eyes will be last. Your status according to the world's reckoning has no bearing on your status before God. You could be considered to be the absolute scum of the earth in this peers. But if you come to faith in Christ, you could be first in the kingdom. All or nothing. It's a phrase that often doesn't sit well with us. Because the suggestion of all or nothing usually means if you have this one thing, you can have nothing of this other thing. And I think human nature, we like to have what we want. We don't like giving up our stakes in anything. But that's exactly the equation Jesus spells out in this passage. Jesus says, whatever is your all, whatever is your everything, everything else will be your nothing. Let me repeat that. Jesus says, whatever is your all, whatever is your everything, in contrast, everything else will be your nothing. For the little children, it was the nothing that they had. Nothing to offer, no status. That was the everything they needed to enter into the kingdom. To quote the old song, nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. 
was an encouragement to me many years ago that I didn't have to be good enough to be ready for Jesus. I didn't need to come with some form of moral resume complete with character references, which wouldn't have been much good, I can tell you that. I had nothing but brokenness and sin. He did the work. All I did was to receive his grace and mercy through faith. And by faith received the very righteousness of Christ. By that I received and am sealed by his spirit and am justified in his sight. For the rich man, he had the morality passport. He lived a wonderful life. He probably lived a way better life than I do. He was rich. He seemed to have all of the blessings that they thought was associated with being right in God's sight. If you were a first century Jew and you saw that man, you would go, that guy's got everything. And that was entirely the problem. For that guy, what he had was his everything. When he was challenged to give it up, He proved that it was his everything. It was that, no, this is the non-negotiable. This is what I will not give up for anything. This is my everything. And as a result, his initial inquiry about gaining eternal life, he left with nothing with regards to that because his everything was a hindrance. Either Jesus Christ will be your all. He will be your everything. And you will happily consider anything else as nothing in comparison. Like as Paul proclaimed in Philippians 3, I count all things as nothing for the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my God, and count them as loss or dung. Or if anything else is your all, if anything else other than Christ is your all, it is your everything, you will happily call everything else your nothing, even the very gospel of Jesus Christ, even the kingdom of God. And if something other than Christ is your all, not only will you happily call everything else your nothing, The day when your final day has come, even that which was your all will come to nothing. You can't take it with you. But if Jesus Christ is your all and you will happily call everything else nothing, everything else your negotiable can give up at any time, then even beyond death, you will have your all and more. Let us close in prayer. Heavenly Father, we acknowledge that at times that we regard as valuable and as riches things that are merely fleeting, temporary and of no eternal purpose whatsoever. Lord, forgive us from times when we have grossly 
undervalued you, almost made a mockery of you, degraded your name by choosing and valuing other things as more valuable and more important than you. Lord, we pray that you would work within us that we might see the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ and without any regret whatsoever call everything else to be nothing. Because in Christ we have all that we need for this life and for the age to come. We thank you that we do not come to know you first by our status, achievements, our moral excellence, but simply as sinners begging for your mercy and resting upon what you have done for us to deal with the offence of our sin, to take away your wrath as Jesus took it upon our behalf. And Lord, we we thank you for the opportunity we have now to, to gather around the Lord's table to remember the means by which Jesus has effected that for us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.